I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Although not written by the apostles, that's known as the Apostles' Creed, and it is a concise summary of their teaching. It originated as a, actually as a Christian baptismal confession. Those being baptized would confess that they believed those things, probably in the second century. And it developed in its present form, really, probably no later than the seventh century. So it was put together sometime in the early centuries of the history of the church. It's used by Protestants by Roman Catholics, and by the Orthodox alike. And it may rightly be called the ecumenical creed of Christianity. So, of course, we need to issue two quick clarifications. When it said he descended into hell, we understand it to mean that Christ suffered the pains of eternal punishment for elect sinners. We don't believe that Jesus went to hell. Satan does not have that power over him. But he did drink of the cup of the wrath of God for his own. And then when it refers to the Holy Catholic Church, we understand that this is talking about the universal church and not Roman Catholicism. One of the few, um, I believe, unfortunate results of the Reformation is that Protestants did not acquire the name Catholic. And so when we hear the word, we immediately think of Roman Catholicism. It just simply means universal. Earlier, we sang the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, which was written by a young man who was training for ministry. His name was Samuel Stone. And he wrote it as part of a collection of 12 hymns that were based on the Apostles' Creed. And this collection was put together to shore up the church's doctrine during a time of great theological drift. There were some within the church who were, for example, claiming that that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. It probably happened later. Ideas like this were beginning to spread, which made way for for questioning the, the validity and the authority of Scripture. It made way for liberalism to creep into churches. The church has long understood that the songs that we sing become the things that we believe as truth, whether they're true or not, right? This song was written specifically to stress this point from the creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Listen to verse 2 from that hymn again. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. We believe that there is one holy church. 
And that as Christians and as a Christian church, Logansville Church is part of the one holy church. We also believe that the one holy church is made up of local assemblies of Christians. See, the Bible knows nothing of Christians who are part of the one holy church, the universal church, without being a part of a, of a local church. In fact, all of Paul's letters are written with the context of the local church. 1 Corinthians is no exception. So again, this week, we did this last week. I want to do this again this week. I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And we're only going to get to verse 2 today. Um, I don't want to make promises I can't keep, but I promise we're not going to go through it each verse a week. But I don't, I can't, I can't, don't hold me to that. But let's just read this. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. God's word is so rich. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Feed us from your word. Remind us that we are united together, not only with one another, but with all those who in every place have called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. One of the things that should become more and more clear to us, even as we read these first nine verses over and over and during these weeks that we're on this passage, one of the things that should become more and more clear to us is the lordship of Jesus Christ. How many times just in these nine verses is his name and his title as Lord repeated, even just in this introduction? Understanding that Jesus is Lord is key to understanding the book of 1 Corinthians. Understanding that Jesus is Lord is key to understanding Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. His authority both over the church of Corinth to whom he writes and, and even extending to our day over us as he writes scripture here. So last week as we looked at verse 1, we looked into Paul's conversion and his calling to be an apostle. And we saw that God's irresistible grace saved him, and that Jesus even had said of him back in Acts chapter 9, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Christ himself intervened in Paul's murderous, hate-fueled heart and sent him to testify to the grace and mercy of the good news of salvation in Christ alone. So this morning we're going to be looking closely at just verse 2. And as we do, we're going to be answering a, the question that at first looks really straightforward. 
but in, quite, in reality is, is quite involved in the end. And I'm praying is encouraging and unifying to us. And that question is this, who is this letter written to? Who is this letter written to? Earlier in the service during our scripture reading, we read um, Acts chapter 18, which as I said was the account of Paul's time ministering in the city of Corinth. And I don't want to take the time to go back and read it again, but I would encourage you this week, and especially as, we, as you ponder and meditate on 1 Corinthians, to go back and read it again. Familiarize yourself with the background from the scriptures. And when you do, when you go back and read Acts 18 again, I want you to notice three things. And these will serve as some kind of, uh, a little bit of background information for us this morning. The first thing that I want you to notice is that Paul faced some measure of opposition while he ministered in the city of Corinth. And this seems to have led to some sort of fear on Paul's part, and and possibly he wanted to leave. But Christ himself said to him this, this is in Acts 18 verses 9 and 10, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus himself fortified, strengthened the apostle Paul to continue this work, pointing out that he has many others in the city who would call upon his name. Secondly, the second thing I want you to notice when you read back over Acts 18 is that there's every indication that a church was well-established in the city of Corinth by Paul in the couple of years that he ministered there, and then also it continued to grow after he left. At the end of Acts chapter 18, again, I read this a little bit earlier, but at the end of 18, we are introduced to Apollos, and he was preaching in Ephesus, and when, uh, when we read through this, we read this. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. He's in Ephesus, which is across the sea in Turkey. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, Achaia is the, the region in which Corinth, the city, is located. It's like saying the Midwest, something like that. Um, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul will write this. He will say simply, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paulos ministered in the city of Corinth after Paul left, evidently, and God used that to grow the church. We could say that one of the themes of this book is the unity of the church under the lordship of Jesus Christ, which really brings us to the third bit of kind of background information that we should know here, which is that it is clear that the church at Corinth was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But since Corinth was a Greek city, literally, it's not far from Athens, Corinth is a Greek city, the majority of the church were likely Gentile pagan converts, which by the time Paul writes this letter, was affecting the church. So think of it this way. Jewish Christians, those who were Jews and trusted in Christ for salvation, they had an understanding of Yahweh in their background, 
They, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the law and the customs. And when they would fall back into their old manner of life, it was a falling back into a strict adherence to God's law and a dependence on their own law-keeping for salvation. That's what would happen to the Jews when they fell back. When the Gentile pagan converts fell back into their old ways, they typically, it involved uh, idolatry and immorality, which was cloaked in a pagan religious practice. These two groups of Christians, which made up the church at Corinth, had very different backgrounds, but were now united in Christ. Yet because of the growth of the church and the conversion of mostly Gentiles, the church itself began to, began to lower their standards of holiness and purity. We're going to see this as the book plays out. But there's another characteristic that we should note as well. By the time, by the time Paul preached in Corinth, the city itself was in, a, in an economic boom. And the divide between the haves and the have-nots was growing. Wealth and power and status was important to the Corinthians. And this led to divisions in the church over a wide variety of issues, again, that we will see as we work through this letter. And so Paul writes to encourage true unity. He's not writing to them simply say, we should agree to disagree. He's writing to them for genuine unity. And this is even seen here in this opening verse, these opening statements. Yes, this is Paul simply addressing who this letter is, is written to, but he's also brilliantly uniting them together under, in this one statement. Not just with one another, but even with other churches as well. So verse 2 answers one important question. Who is this writ letter written to? And the quick answer is to the church of God that is in Corinth. But Paul expands that. So, so let me read this verse again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This verse is a statement that, that clearly defines who is a part of the church. Paul begins by saying that he's writing to those sanctified, those sanctified, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to the phrase, the, the church of God, a little bit later. But at the outset, I want to point out that Paul switches, right in that first statement, he switches from the singular to the plural. Church is singular. Look at this again. To the church of God that is in Corinth. That's a singular statement. But then he switches to the plural when he says, to those sanctified, the individuals that make up the church. He's talking about all of these people that make up one united body. And this idea of being a people of God who are sanctified, it, this really brings us back to the foot of Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says to his people, as he's about to give them the law, he says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel, he says to Moses. A holy nation. 
a people set apart for his own possession, belonging to a holy God who is perfect in righteousness. This is what it means to be sanctified. The church, the people of God, have been set apart to reflect who he is, including his holiness. Remember what Paul wrote up in in chapter 6, verse 11. I, I mentioned this last week. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christians have been sanctified, have been set apart for holiness. And here's the thing. That passage in in the law, the promise of Exodus chapter 19, when he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel didn't keep that. In fact, they broke it before Moses came down the mountain with the commandments. And they were worshiping the golden calf. But Christ did keep this. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us this, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, our breaking of God's law, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to sanctify us, to make us holy. Sin brings guilt. Sin brings pollution. And so to be sanctified means that our guilt has been removed through an atonement, through a payment, through a sacrifice for sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, the preacher of Hebrews explains it like this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The church consists, the church is made up of those whose guilt for sin has been removed. Those who have been made inwardly holy by the work of Christ. Those who have been set apart to God as his special chosen people. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Charles Hodge, um, he taught at Princeton Seminary back in the mid-1800s, so he's been dead for a while. His commentary on this verse, he says this, In Christ Jesus, that is in virtue of union with him, it is only in him that we are partakers of these inestimable blessings. It is because we are in him as our head and representative that we are justified by his righteousness. And it is because we are in him as a branch is in the vine that we are purified by his spirit. And remember, what's that verse? Romans 8.1. How's it go? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has removed all of our guilt and shame. Paul writes to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And he also says to those who are called to be saints, called to be saints. Just as the apostle Paul was called to be an apostle, verse 1, He reminds the Corinthians that God has set them apart, called them to a a specific role with which they will live holy lives and, and work at building his church. And what's clear is that it is God who has appointed them. It is God who has called them to be saints. What's a saint? 
the Roman Catholic Church uses this as a special designation for a certain type of person. And it's almost always, as far as I know, it's almost always bestowed on them after they've died and if they've performed some sort of supposed miracle. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. The word saint is essentially the noun form of the word sanctified, which means that a saint is someone who is sanctified. In fact, this is the word saint, the, the noun saint here, is the most common uh, designation for the people of God in the New Testament. This is the most common name, what the people of God are called the most in the New Testament. Now, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word disciple is the most common name for the followers of Jesus. But by definition, a disciple is simply a student or a pupil, a, a follower of a teacher's teaching. And Jesus had disciples who were not sanctified saints. The most clear example of this, besides maybe Judas, the most clear example of this is John 6, verse 66, which says, after this, that is some particularly hard teaching, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Disciples, his followers. But beginning in Acts chapter 9, and continuing really throughout the, the rest of the New Testament, the most common way to refer to a Christian is to call him a saint. Now here's a good definition. Saints are the elect people of God, consecrated to serve his righteous cause in battle against his enemies and destined to share in the glories of his kingdom. Keep that in mind when people use the word saint against you as kind of a passive insult or, or somehow to imply that you're a goody two-shoes or whatever. I don't even know what that means. Saints are the elect people of God, consecrated to serve his righteous cause in battle against his enemies and destined to share in the glories of his kingdom. That's what a saint is. And remember, Paul is he's just simply addressing this letter to the Corinthian church. And yet calling church members saints, this actually has at least four implications for us. Let me give these to you. First, they are called saints by his call. We are called by Christ to be saints, just as, just as Paul was called by Christ to be an apostle. Paul didn't, Paul didn't choose that. Paul didn't earn that. Paul didn't achieve his apostleship by, by being some kind of super Christian. We know that because we saw that last week. Neither do we achieve holiness. Neither do we achieve sainthood. We receive it from God as a gift. We are called. And don't forget how this works. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 puts it like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're a Christian, you are a saint because God has called you. If you're a Christian, you are a saint because God has called you. 
The second implication for us is that saints belong to the church. They're church members. And as church members, we are God's. We belong to God, apostrophe S. We're not God's. Don't misunderstand what I just said. We belong to God. (laughs) In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. The holy people of God are saints who have been set apart for his own possession, not for our own purposes. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8 tells us, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. This has great implications for what used to be called churchmanship. Have you ever heard that term? Being a churchman? Active in the local church? No one really talks about it anymore. But to be a saint means that you belong to the church of God. And not just any old big friendly church of God. A church of God specifically. That you are involved with a church of God. Third, to be a To be a saint is to be called to a particular lifestyle with different standards of thinking and behavior. In a word, we're called to holiness. We're called to holiness. For example, Paul will address immorality in various places in this letter. And in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In the law, in Leviticus chapter 19 verses 1 and 2, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Peter When he writes his first letter, he will draw on this and he will say this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is, this is completely countercultural. This is completely against the trends of our society. But this is what being a saint is. It's being set apart from the patterns of this world and set apart to service of our Lord. And then the fourth implication of the, of the term saints has a, a group or, or a corporate significance. In other words, we're just not simply a a bunch of holy people living in close proximity. We're actually a holy people, a holy assembly, singular. 
This is where we come back um, to that first phrase. It means that we have obligations to one another as well as to our God. That first phrase to the church of God, singular. This is especially clear in places like chapter 5. Listen to verses 4 and 5. Paul is addressing uh, the sin that is in the assembly, a sin that is in and amongst the people, and he instructs them like this. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When there is sin in the church, when there is sin in the assembly, it will spread if it is not removed. It will defile the entire assembly. If we refuse to deal with it, it will make us all unholy. Paul makes that very clear in chapter 5. This brings us really to the idea that we are called to be saints together. Together. Look at verse 2 again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, together. Paul here is reminding the Corinthian church that the assembly of the saints, that one holy uh, universal Catholic church, that it exists beyond the city of Corinth. Remember, he's going to be addressing unity and unity within the church throughout his letter here. Even beginning really down in verse 10, he brings it up specifically. But this idea that we are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that brings us right back. Look at it again, that first phrase in the verse, the church of God. Who is Paul addressing? Paul is addressing the church at Corinth, who is united with the church at Ephesus, who is united with the saints at Philippi, who is united together with those sanctified believers at Thessalonica, who are united together with the church at Logansville, and on and on. As saints, we are connected to this local body of believers. That's a truth that is simply understood throughout the New Testament, that Christians are connected to a church, but even as a church, we are not called to be saints alone, we're called to be saints together. The second half of the Apostles' Creed, it says this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Logansville Church is not the one true church, but it is a part of it. Even together with others, even others with whom we would strongly disagree about a variety of doctrines. And in the end, there is only one real requirement. Look at the verse again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. One Lord, 
The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, the, the Old Testament prophet writes this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In its original context, Joel is looking forward to the day when God's Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, he writes, and the Lord will come to judge sinners and and to deliver his people from the hands of their enemies. Here, Paul applies this to Christ's salvation. And it's this, this strong, covenantal, protecting lordship that Paul has in mind when he talks about calling upon the name of the Lord. Calling on his name means crying out to him for deliverance and rescue. Calling upon the name of the Lord is repenting of your sins and believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's having faith in him and worshiping him and serving him and obeying his commands. Romans chapter 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches to all who call on him. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me finish with a couple of, um, I like to call these gospel notes. A couple things to take away and start chewing on. Number one, if you're a Christian, then you are set apart from the rest of the world. So live like it. If you're a Christian, then you're set apart from the rest of the world. So live like it. Because we're called to be holy as Christ is holy. I commend you because you are. Number two, if you're a Christian, then you're called to be a saint together with all the saints. Therefore, therefore, Hebrews chapter 12, listen to verses 1 to 3. It says it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. We're all in this together. And then number three, finally, if you're a Christian, you're called to be a part of a local church. Peter's first sermon to the Jews in Jerusalem In Acts chapter 2, near the end of that sermon, verse 36 says this. Peter sort of nails his point home and he says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent and be baptized. Join the church. Join together with those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Let us now proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that we are not in this alone. Not only have you given us your spirit, not only have you promised to be with us forever, but you have also made the promise, Jesus himself made the promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Lord, we rejoice that you are continuing to build your church that you are bringing us together through the proclamation of your word, that we might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be redeemed, be set apart, be sanctified, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. There is one Lord, and it is him. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And, Father, as we approach the table this morning, we are reminded of the gravity of the death of Christ, that he, he purchased his church with his own blood, that for our sin he died. Lord, as we think of the bread, as we taste the bread in a moment, we are thankful. We are thankful that Christ went to the cross, gave up his life that we might live. As we drink of the cup, we are thankful. We are thankful that Christ shed his blood that we might live. Father, as we proclaim these things, we proclaim his death and we long for the day when he returns and we can be with him face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.